following Christ's ministry chronologically through the New Testament, and we are now to this particular episode in the life of our Lord where he begins to preach more or less, especially to the multitudes, in parables. We're going to talk about the parables of Christ this morning. Beginning in Matthew 13, we're going to read down through verse 23. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 1. Kenny said, cut loose a while ago, let her rip, and it did. I got to where I couldn't make a sound over there uh, for a few minutes. I'm glad my voice has come back, at least to some extent, but I've got to be careful about that cutting loose in my delicate condition. Yes, if you could, Kenny, a glass of water would be great. Matthew, the 13th chapter, begin reading in verse 1. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spoke many things unto them in parables, saying, here's the first parable, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, And I need to stop right here. You know, it just struck me that some of our young people might have no idea what the word sow means. They're thinking that he's sitting there perhaps at a sowing machine. He's he's sowing. But this is sowing like sowing seed. In the old days, they would take a uh, sack of seed under their arms and they would go out into the fields and they would take handfuls of the grain and they would just throw it everywhere. And that's what's meant here by the sower who is going forth to sow his fields with seed. Okay? Behold, a sower went forth to sow it. Verse 4, and when he sowed, some of the seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came, the birds came and devoured them. Some fell upon stony places, where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprang up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But other seeds fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that which he has. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Hear therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he 
which receives seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed in stony places, the same as he that hears the word and straightway with joy receives it. Yet he hath no root in himself, but endureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, straightway he is offended. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he become unfruitful. But he that receives seed in the good ground is he that hears the word and understands it, who also beareth fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, there was something very different about his style of teaching. You've heard me explain to you before that the scribes taught mainly by quoting those rabbis that had preceded them. Thank you, Kenny. They would basically teach like this. Oh, Rabbi so-and-so said this about this. Rabbi so-and-so said this. And so that's where we stand. We stand right there with good old Rabbi so-and-so. Jesus came along and says, You have heard, it hath been said of old, but I say unto you, this is what it is. Now that was unique, wasn't it? And at the end of the, para- uh, the, end of the Sermon on the Mount, we see that the people are amazed at his teaching, especially at his authority. The fact that he takes this authoritative stance as he does. We also notice that the scribes taught basically for the intelligentsia, the educated. Whereas Jesus' style, I suppose the word that we could use, and I, I would have you turn over to Mark's Gospel just a moment to see this, is that he taught in a popular style. Now, I know we might react against that and say, well, there really wasn't much popular. Uh, did I say Mark 2? Mark 12. Mark 12. There wasn't much popular in Jesus' style of preaching or his content. Well, we don't mean popular in the sense that it's popular like a song or a movie. Everybody goes there, is attracted to it. But we mean it's popular in the sense that it was something understood by the people. Look in Mark 12, verse 37. They've just asked, uh, Jesus just asked the scribes, uh, how it is that Jesus, if, or the Christ, the Messiah, if he's to be David's son, how does David then call him his Lord? Look in verse 37. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and how is he then his son? And notice the next phrase. And the common people heard him gladly. That's what I mean by the popular style of Jesus. It was something that the average Joe You know, Joe Blow sitting out there in the pew. He didn't have to have a college degree. He didn't have to have some understanding of languages. And I think even so today, even though understanding of Greek and Hebrew is very helpful in understanding the Scriptures and in teaching the Scriptures, our basic problem is not the fact that we don't know Greek. It's that we don't obey plain English. That's our basic problem. These things are not that difficult to understand. Now, one of the very distinctive features of the style of Jesus' teaching was his use of what we call parables. Now, parabole in Greek is the word that's transliterated into our word parable. And this Greek word from the beginning literally meant in the original to set two things side by side. 
So, for instance, sometimes this term parable was applied to two warships coming side by side and firing salvos at each other. But eventually, the idea of setting things side by side came to imply the idea of a comparison, that we set two things side by side and we compare the two. So that, you see, a parable then, according to Webster, is a short, fictitious story that illustrates a moral attitude or religious principle. A short, fictitious story that illustrates, you see, the idea of a parable is to compare things, to illustrate a religious principle. Now, people tell me, and I don't particularly feel this way, but people are always telling me, how do you come up with your illustrations? The Lord's given you a good gift for illustrations, and I don't know if he has or not. All I know is they don't come easy. But I do know this, that I'm at a disadvantage this morning, because you'll notice that a parable by its very nature is an illustration. So how do you illustrate an illustration? Do you, you understand my difficulty this morning? Usually, illustrations, what I work on now, I've got to, it's sort of like if I say, give me another word for synonym. <laughs> Come on, you know, it doesn't work. A synonym means another word. That's sort of where I am this morning. So pray for me as I sort of struggle through this topic this morning, okay? But that's what parables are. They are illustrations. Now, it's helpful for us to sort of classify parables, classify them as to different types or sorts of parables. First of all, there is what we call, or what I call, these are my names, by the way. You will not find these anywhere else. This is the gospel according to Mark here. Uh, my classifications. I call, first of all, one type of parable a classical parable. And what I mean by that is that the true classical parable is a short, fictitious story, as Webster said, that basically teaches one thing. That is intended, it's sort of like some of the nursery rhymes that we learned as children. And we tell this story and we get to the end of the story. And what do we say? And the moral of the story is such and such. In other words, we told the whole story to get to this one punchline, if you will. To the main heart and soul of what the story is all about. There are some of our Lord's parables that are very much like that. Turn to Matthew 13, verse 31. Matthew 13, verse 31. Here's an example. It says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like... You see the idea of a little fictitious story that's a comparison. It's a likeness, a similitude. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches of it. Notice he's telling us something about the kingdom of heaven. It's like this. It's like a mustard seed, a very small, tiny seed, which you plant it, and it becomes a great big plant. Now, do you think, for instance, that Jesus intends for us to sort of understand all the details of this? And, I, and I've heard preachers approach this parable on this basis, of saying, well, you know, what's really being taught here is... Basically, the false church, that which pretends to be the kingdom of heaven. This is not the way mustard grows. Uh, mustard doesn't become a big tree. Well, it doesn't over here in this part of the world. It does over there in Palestine. 
And, you know, birds of the air don't nest in it. Well, they don't hear, but they do over there. In other words, they say, well, the birds nesting in the trees. This talks about the demons that come in and infiltrate this false church. That this is really not the true church. Well, that would be saying, you might as well, Jesus, have said the kingdom of heaven is not like this. It's turning the whole thing upside down. I don't believe Jesus intended for us to look at that parable and say, well, the birds represent this and the tree represents this. It has basically one point. That which was tiny and small in its beginning became great big in its end. That's the point of the parable. And so it was with the kingdom of heaven. It begins with, here's Jesus with 12 men. And it's not long before those 12 become hundreds and thousands of men. Okay? And that's the main point. Same thing is true with the parable that follows in verse 33. Here's another one. Another parable spoke he unto them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Now, because leaven sometimes in Scripture illustrates and is used as symbolic of sin and evil, for instance, the days of unleavened bread was a feast where you were to go around and get all the leaven in your house and get it out. Leaven, by the way, was just being yeast. There are those who interpret this passage exactly the same way. This is not the kingdom of heaven. This is the false church. That the false church has this thing called sin in it and it, and it permeates. And the three measures of meal mean this. And I don't think that's the point. It's just one main point. That leaven tends to infiltrate the whole. And so it is with the kingdom of heaven. That that which starts, it infiltrates intensively and extensively in this earth. It spreads, if you will. And that is the point of the parable. So I would say that, first of all, there are those that I call classical parables. Then there's a second type of parable. It is an allegorical parable. Now, I said a moment ago that in these classical parables, you know, like the woman with the measure, you know, I don't think we're supposed to figure out who the woman is or what the three measures of meal represent. That's not the point. But in an allegorical parable, every detail in the parable has some correspondence to something out here in reality. In this same chapter, we have one of those types. Turn to Matthew 13, verse 24. Here's a parable where a man goes out and sows his field with seed, and then his enemy comes along in the night and sows weeds, tares, out there in the same field. And they come up and they sprout. And the servants want to go pluck up the weeds. And he says, no, leave them alone. Let's pulling up the weeds, pull up some of the wheat too. Wait till the harvest. Then when we separate them, we'll separate the seeds. We'll bring the grain into the barn. We'll burn these weeds in the fire. Now, Notice as Jesus gives the interpretation, starting in verse 36, they come and ask him to explain this. What's interesting in this parable, every single detail, everything, the seed means something, the field means something, the weeds mean something, the enemy that sowed them is the devil, you remember, the reapers, he says, are the angels. Do you see what I'm saying? Every little detail. It's an allegory. It's analogous. Every detail is analogous to something out here in the real world, in spiritual truth. 
If you're familiar with Bunyan's great allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, then you're familiar with this kind of a story. And it's amazing how much truth Bunyan wove into that story, how every little detail is not there by accident. It has some correspondence in biblical truth. And then there's even a third type of parable. I call it a comparative parable. And I'm not going to deal so much with that, but uh, I'll give you one example. You remember Jesus told a story about a widow lady that was had somebody passing her. Somebody was trying to take her land away from her, apparently. So she went to this unjust judge. And that unjust judge didn't give a hoot about God, didn't give a hoot about anybody. But she kept going and pestering him and pestering him. And he said, you know, I don't fear God, I don't fear, fear man, but I'm going to do what this woman is asking me to do simply because she's bothering me. Now, that's a strange story, but what Jesus is saying there is if an unjust judge, a judge didn't give a hoot about anybody, will honor the request of this woman simply because she keeps pestering him, how much more will your kind, loving, good, heavenly Father hear his own children, though they may have to ask a lot, before he answers, we're never to think that he will not, in fact, give us what we ask for Because look what this unjust judge did in that situation. Do you see the idea of a comparative parable? If this is true in this situation, how much more is it true in this situation? So those basically are the three categories of types of parables. Now, let's talk about the purpose of parables. You see, before we're actually getting into our text this morning, by the time I get through telling you all this, we won't have time see it coming, but we need to understand a little bit about the theology of parables. Why are you telling parables? And we might say that the primary purpose of a parable is to illustrate something. It's a comparison. It's a likeness. There is something about our minds that many times it's much easier for us to see something, to have it visualized before our eyes, than to simply be given verbal instructions. Any of you who have ever been in Boy Scouts, you remember you've got those knot-tying diagrams? Can you imagine, if you didn't have the picture, if they said, okay, take the, the, the end that is in your right hand, pass it over the one and then under it. Can you imagine getting verbal instruction of how to tie, let's say, a square knot? It is much, much more helpful to have a diagram to be able to see it. My wife recently went and bought a uh, computer hutch for our bedroom. Got a great deal on it. Unfortunately, it was in a million pieces. Sammy worked for about three days on it while he was here, and I worked for about a week on it. And I'm telling you, if it had not been for the pictures in that instruction book and the fact they had everything labeled, you know, G here and G goes over here to H and so forth, if it hadn't been for the pictures, there's no way we could have constructed the thing. There is the old saying that a picture is worth a thousand words. And so many times our Lord gives a picture in words, He paints a picture for us so that we are able thereby to grasp what he is teaching. I'm thinking, for instance, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, he tells the story about a wise man and a foolish man. Even children can understand what he's saying. Do you understand the principle that you must have a foundation for your life, a solid foundation, a solid rock? And that is what Jesus is comparing his teaching to in that parable. But no earthly 
no human illustration can possibly measure up or match the parables that our Lord gives us here in Scripture. This is why these pictures, these illustrations are so important, is because they are coming from the very Son of God, the one who is in the bosom of the Father, the one who is the revelator of what the Father is like, the one who knows God's truth firsthand. There's a difference between the teaching of Christ and the teaching of an earthly preacher. We we may come up with some good illustrations, but nothing to match what Jesus gives us here in these parables. I I recall reading about a group of men about a hundred years ago, sitting as men did in those days, smoking their pipes, talking over philosophy and so forth. And one of them raised a question to the other, says, What's so different about Jesus Christ? What makes him different from all the other great men in the world? And one of them answered like this. He said, if one of the other great men from history suddenly walked into this room, Shakespeare, Caesar, he said, we would automatically, without thinking, stand up. He said, if Jesus Christ walked into this room, we would automatically fall on our faces. You see, there is a difference, a superlative quality to the teaching of Jesus Christ because of who he is. So the primary purpose of a parable is to illustrate, but, and this is going to sound contradictory, there is a secondary use of parable that we're running into here in Matthew 13. A secondary usage of the term parable is to obscure You say, well, wait a minute, what what do you mean? You said he uses parables to illustrate. Yes, he does. And then he turns right around and sometimes uses parables to obscure the truth. Now, I don't mean that he tells them a lie. He uses a parable to tell them the truth, but it's not clear. It's fuzzy. Notice here in Matthew 13, back in verse 3, It says that he spoke many things unto them in parables. Now, he had used parables before. Earlier in his ministry, you can find his usage of parables. But what is peculiar here, and by the way, the disciples pick up on it, is that he's only speaking in parables. Look look down in verse 10. The disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? You're not teaching like you used to. You see, they're picking up on something unusual going on here. This is not the way Jesus has taught heretofore. Why are you now only speaking in parables? Well, you see, there's another usage of a parable. It can also be a riddle, a mystery, especially if the explanation is not being declared. Now, the disciples want to know why. Why are you not speaking plainly? Why are you not teaching clearly as you have been up to this point? And I would have you notice the context of chapter 13. And you who have been here in our study of the chronological life of Christ, you understand that by now what has just occurred in chapter 12 is that Jesus is being accused of being possessed by Beelzebub. Basically being possessed by the devil. And of course they say, no wonder he's able to cast out these devils. Why, he's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils himself. 
Now what that has done, and I hope you understand this and why Jesus relates this as the sin against the Holy Ghost, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is basically you are blasphemy and slandering the very witness that God is giving you of His Son, the very works that He's doing to prove who He is, you're taking that witness and twisting it and saying that's the devil's testimony. So that you put yourself in a position to where what's going to change your mind? More works? More miracles? More testimony from God? Do do you see what that does? The peculiar situation that places a man in? And what Jesus is doing in chapter 13 as he explains here in this rather lengthy quote out of the book of Isaiah. He says, I am simply doing what Isaiah did in his day. Isaiah was commissioned. You recall he saw the Lord high and lifted up there in Isaiah 6. And the Lord says, who who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, you know, here I am, send me, send me. You remember what his mission was as he goes on to describe it? Isaiah, I want you to go out there and put them to sleep. I want you to be a knockout drug to the people of Israel. Make them dull. Make them sleepy. Hey, some of us preachers have that knack. You know, put them out so that judgment will surely come upon the land. And now Jesus is saying, I am doing as Isaiah did. Because hearing, they don't really hear. Seeing, they don't really... You see, I've been teaching, giving them the bright light, the clear light, the true light. And they don't want it. They're thrusting it away from them. They're pushing it away. And so now, I'm going to start giving them what they want. They don't like the light. They like darkness. I'm removing the light. Removing the clarity. At least removing it from the people as a whole. Now, to the disciples, you see, to them it is given to know. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now we sometimes read that verse. By the way, that's verse uh, 11. It's given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To them it is not given. We sometimes view that in the framework of raw sovereignty. Raw election. I've chosen to give it to you. I don't give it to them. But I would have you notice in verse 12 that there is a judicial outworking. This is coming about because of what they have done. Notice he says, to everyone that hath, to whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he'll get more and more. But the fellow who has not shall be taken from him what he has. And that's strange. How do you take away something from someone who doesn't have anything? Well, they don't have it really. Luke's gospel puts it this way, that which he seems to have. It seems like he's got it. It looks like he's got it. He has it for a little while. But if he doesn't use it, if he doesn't desire more, what he's got will be taken away. And my friend, that's a universal principle with the way God deals with man. Are you hungry for more? Do you truly want more? Do you want to see more? Do you want more light? God will surely give it to you. But are you sick and tired? Are you bored? Or you said, I've had enough. You know, I'm full of this stuff. Then God will most surely take it away, what you seem to have. And that's what's going on in these mysterious mysterious kingdom parables of chapter 13. God is removing judicially the light from the nation of Israel. Now let's talk about misuse of parables. 
The greatest mistake that is made in using and interpreting parables is basing your doctrinal understanding on a parable. Let me say it again. The single most, the most often mistake, how should I put it? Yes, the, the most prominent mistake that is made in dealing with parables is basing your theological, your doctrinal understanding on a parable. Rather than on a didactic, a teaching portion of the Word of God dealing with that doctrine. Let, let me give you some examples. Let me try to, you do understand that the problem with Scripture is in its interpretation. You say, well, there it is, it's just there in plain English. Well, may I point out to you that the Jehovah's Witness look at the same Bible you look at, the Mormons look at the same Bible you look at, all the cults read the same verses you read. It's not that they can't read, it's their interpretation of these verses. Ah, that's where the difficulty lies. And you say, well, I don't really interpret Scripture. I just read it. You know, I just understand it, like like the words say. I take everything literal. Well, all you're really telling me there is that that's your hermeneutic. That's your principle of interpretation. And may I warn you against an only a literal interpretation of Scripture can get you into big trouble. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus understood him literally. How in the world can I get back my mother's womb when I'm old, he asked. Jesus wasn't speaking. Well, he was speaking literally in a sense. You must literally be born again, but he wasn't speaking physically. At one point, Jesus was saying to his disciples to beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. And they said, oh, me, they got all upset. It's because we've taken no bread with us. They didn't understand. He wasn't talking about physical leaven. He was talking about the teaching, the doctrine of the scribes and Pharisees. And by the way, if we want to be true literalists when it comes to understanding Scripture, when we come to the Lord's table, the Roman Catholics have got it right. I mean, Jesus said, this is my body, didn't he? Didn't he take that piece of bread and said, this is my body? He said, this is my blood when he took the cup. I mean, the Roman Catholics take that literal. This is actually his body. Part of the problem. And that is our problem sometimes in applying Scripture. And especially when it comes to parables, these are, after all, stories. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of how people base doctrine on parables. We have in the South, in particular, a group of Baptists called Landmark Baptists who teach that they and they alone are the true church of Jesus Christ and that their baptism and their baptism alone is the true baptism. That basically, if you've not been baptized by a fellow who was duly authorized to baptize, who was baptized by another man duly authorized, all the way back to John, I'm still looking for that fellow duly one of these days, I'll get duly authorized. I'll get him to authorize me, and then I'll be. But, but anyway, the, the idea is, is that there's this unbroken line of baptized men all the way back to John. And so they constitute the one and only true church. And they would say that on the basis of the parable of the wedding guests, you remember the wise and foolish virgins waiting on the appearance of the bridegroom, that, oh yes, there'll be other people in heaven. But you see, we're the bride... And these other people will be the guests. 
that there's a distinction to be made in the people of God between those who constitutes the bride, that's us, and those who are but wedding guests, that's everybody else, not in the true church. Now, I would ask you, where in the world would you find that elsewhere in the didactic portions of Scripture? Where would you find such a thing taught, some sort of two-tiered membership or two-tiered kingdom of heaven? Well, you just won't find it, but you can make that parable say that. I give you another example. There are some premillennialists, and not all, just some, who see in the same parable, wise and foolish virgins, the idea of a split rapture being taught. That there are some who will be raptured before the tribulation, those who have the oil in their lamps and are ready to go in with the bridegroom, and others who, because of they weren't ready, will be left behind and have to go through the tribulation before they're raptured at the second coming of Christ. Then there is yet another group of Pentecostals Not all, some Pentecostals teach on the basis of the same parable now. Wise and foolish virgins, same one. They will say that this teaches very clearly and very plainly that only spirit-filled Christians, of course with the evidence of speaking in tongues, are in fact true Christians and are going to get in when the bridegroom comes. All the rest will be left behind. I just give you one parable and look at the variety of interpretations that you can come up with on this one parable, all by people claiming to believe the Word of God and believing they're interpreting it correctly. In other words, be very careful when you deal with parables that you don't use. They are, after all, illustrations. They're not the main teaching itself. They're to illustrate what is the main teaching. A second mistake is not seeing a parable in its historical setting. Many of these parables of Jesus, I'm thinking of the vineyard, the men who have this vineyard that's been given to them. They're working it and going to pay back the the one who owns it from the fruit of the vineyard. deals clearly with the situation of Israel in that day. Certainly it has universal application, but it deals primarily with the situation at hand, the fact that those who have the custodial care of Israel have been unfaithful and they're about to lose their office and their stewardship. But right on the heels of that, you can also see parables as only historical and not see a universal application. We can limit such parables just to the fact of Jesus' day and say that really doesn't apply to us. The fact is, is that men are basically the same in every age. Their problem is basically the same in every age, and the answer is basically the same in every age, so that they have universal application. Well, I've used up my time just trying to get to this. You can read the parable of the seed. Can't you? You know what it means. Jesus is the sower. The seed is the word of the kingdom, the gospel. Right? The soils represent four types of people, four types of hearts, we might say, to which the gospel comes. Some have hard hearts. It doesn't penetrate at all. That's the one by the wayside. Some among the shallow soil sprouts quickly but withers just as quickly away when the sun comes up because there's no root. Others falls among the thorns representing the cares of this world. 
go along real fine until other pressures and issues come into the picture. And then only some, in this case, one out of four, I don't think that's meant to be taken strictly literal, but only one of the four types of soil here, in fact, brings about fruitfulness. The main point of this parable is that the gospel, the word of the kingdom, is like a seed that has power in itself to bring about fruitfulness. I remember in my days growing up on a farm, we grew cotton. That was an extremely labor-intensive crop. It took a tremendous investment both in money and in equipment to grow it. And by the time I went away to college, the farmers there had wised up a bit. They started all growing wheat and milo. Because you see, basically with wheat, you just get the ground ready. You put the seed in the ground. And you stand back and watch it grow. I mean, you sit around. I mean, we used to work like dogs in the summer, hoeing cotton, plowing cotton, cultivating, spraying cotton. And now those farmers back home, I worry about some of those guys. They've just gotten lazy. I mean, they put the seed in the ground. And what do you do? In fact, there is a parable over in Mark's Gospel that the man, the farmer goes out, he puts the seed in the ground, and he just stands back and it grows and he doesn't know how. It's a mystery to him. All he knows is first there's the shoot and then there's the ear and the full corn it matures and he harvests it it's it's like it happens of itself and that's the point of this parable that this message that christ is preaching is a powerful message it has the capability of bringing forth fruit in the life of reproducing itself in the heart and life of those who hear it and reproducing itself to an amazing extent I mean, you know, a farmer would be pretty dumb if he put one wheat seed in the ground in the hopes of getting one wheat seed back. You know, I'm putting these seeds in in the hopes of getting the same number back. That's not how farming works, is it? You put one wheat seed in the ground and you get a head containing maybe as many as a hundred seed back. That's a pretty good return. That's the kind of fruitfulness that this word, this gospel, has the capability of producing in the life. Now, I know that many of you are saying, well, it can do that if it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, if it's accompanied by the Holy Spirit's ministry, if the the word, the gospel, is not really the powerful thing. It's the Holy Spirit that's powerful. Well, in a sense, you're right, and I'm certainly not wanting to debate you on that point. But I just want you to know that the same seed that fell on the rocky soil, the path, the thorny soil, is the same type of seed that fell in the good soil here. If we ask what made the difference here, was it the fact that the sower had one kind of seed that he sowed everywhere else, and then he has the good stuff? You know, the super-duper seed that he puts in the good soil. Is that what the parable is telling us? Or does it say like this that he throws seed and seed alone everywhere else, but when it comes to the good ground, he sprinkles it with Holy Spirit dust, puts the magical stuff on it, and throws it into the goods. You see, that's not the point of the parable. The parable is that the same seed that brought forth a hundredfold over here in the good soil is the same seed that fell everywhere. So, so we would say, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is the condition of the heart on which the seed fell. 
You see, this parable is not being told from the standpoint of divine sovereignty, dealing with the, you know, those mysterious things of election and predestination that are surely all behind this, you understand, but it's dealing from the standpoint of human responsibility. That it is my responsibility to prepare my heart for the seed of God's word. The prepositions here, as the King James translates this, are very interesting. It doesn't hold up in the Greek, but I'm going to mention this anyway. It says that he threw the seed by the wayside. He threw the seed upon the stony ground. He threw the seed among the thorns. But then he threw the seed into the good soil. And I think that is the point here. Is that what's the difference here? Is it special seed that's being used in one case? Energized seed, seed with some special byproduct or component. No, it's the same word in each case. That indeed the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 1, it's the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes it. It's not that one group gets one gospel and another gets another one. They get the puny gospel over here that really doesn't quite get off the ground. Sort of like some of your fireworks over the fourth. Just going to fizzle. Doesn't really get anywhere. And then the good stuff is given to this group over here. It's exactly the same gospel in every case. It's the power, the dunamis of God, the dynamic principle that brings about salvation is to be found in this message. You see, this is like an invasion from space. I've used this illustration before, but I'm telling you this concept of the gospel of Jesus Christ is like a foreign entity coming into this fishbowl we called earth. And it's so unlike any other religious idea that has ever been upon the face of this planet. I mean, you search world religion, and some of them are better than others. Some of them at least do a pretty good job of telling you the shape you're in and your problem. But the problem with the religions of this earth is not a one of them can give you a solution. Except you. The only horse they give you, the only horsepower those religions have is a stick horse. You know what I mean by stick horse? O.E.W. Johnson talks about the village idiot that rode to town on a stick horse. They asked him how was his ride, and he says, well, it was all right, but he's just about as tired as if he had walked. The only power that the world's religion can give you is your power. Gut it out. Here's what you do. Do it. It's the only thing they can show you. It's just the gospel of Jesus Christ that points you to another, to a Savior. To not how good you are, but how good He is. Not whether you can do it, whether He did it. You see, it's the resting your soul in the hope in the person of another. And so this gospel comes along and it transcends. It tells us something about God that the religions of this earth never tell you, can never reveal to you. They all can talk about how strict God is. You go over to the Muslim world, you'll learn about strictness. You'll learn about sternness. You'll learn about how angry and wrathful God is. What Islam cannot teach you is that the God of the universe is a God who's good, a God who's gracious, a God who's merciful. Do you remember a few weeks ago when that little girl, was she eight years old, that drowned over here in Arkabutla? Story was, 
she and her brother had jumped off or fell off the boat out into the lake. And there's a man in the boat, a friend of the family, that's presumably going to swim out and help her. He had no life jacket on. And he got out there and he got in trouble and apparently panicked. And he stripped that life jacket off that eight-year-old girl and saved himself and let her drown. Did y'all see what they charged him with? They did, I didn't even know there was such a law on the books of the state of Mississippi. It was a crime of depravity. A crime of depravity. I thought, you know, that's a good way of putting it. That's exactly what it was. You know, I, I feel sorry for the guy in a way. I, I, I don't, you know, the last thing I'm sure he went out there on that lake that day was to kill an eight-year-old girl. The last thing on his mind. And when he jumped out there, he, his intention was to help her. But the problem was he got in trouble. He panicked. And my friend, the one power everybody will tell you that comes to the forefront in a time like that, at a moment like that, is save yourself at all costs. And my friend, that's sin. That's what lies at the root of every sin you commit. It's a crime of depravity. And it lies at the root of everything we do. Our problem's us. What we are. And then Jerry Bridges shared a story he heard from a missionary with us this week over in India. A man had a busload of tourists he was drove a tour bus up in a mountain area, been up there all day, and came down the side of this mountain on a very steep road, and the brakes went out of that bus. And he started careening down the side of that mountain with no way to stop this bus accelerating and accelerating with a busload of passengers. Somehow he managed to keep the bus on the road till he came down to the bottom of the mountain where it leveled out. And there at the bottom of the mountain there was a little stream that crossed the road, a bridge across it. And out in the middle of that bridge playing was a little three-year-old girl. And that driver had to make a choice. This speeding bus, he can either miss the girl and go off the bridge into the river and kill everybody on board. Or he can kill the life, take the life of that little girl. And he chose to do the latter. Ran over her. Killed her. And when they finally came to a stop, the passengers on that bus were furious with him. Why? What could possess you to do such a thing? And he stood up and he told them, this is my village. This is my home. And that was my daughter in the middle of that bridge. Do you understand that's what God has done for us? It was His Son. He spared Him not. His son. And it wasn't a busload of paying customers. It's a busload of rebels, sinners, enemies. And he gave his son. My friend, that's what the religions of this world cannot teach you. They cannot overwhelm you with the goodness and grace and mercy and love of the God of the universe. 
And that's what's different about Christianity. Oh, it's this seed. It's this message. It's this revelation from heaven. And oh, if it but gets into you, it's got you. It'll possess you. It'll motivate you and move you. It'll change you. If only it enter your heart. You say, how can I have a broken soul, a broken heart? There's only one way I know. The Scriptures never speak of any other way but one. Jesus said, I'm the stone the builders refused. God has taken that stone, made it the head of the corner, and he who falls on that stone shall be broken. But he on whom that stone falls shall be ground to powder. It's going to be broken sooner or later. Now or then, in grace or in judgment, you will be broken. But notice, to fall upon that stone. Where are you today? And how will it, how long might it be before God removes your light? Now you sit, you hear of Christ, you hear of this wonderful God of the universe who loves even his enemies, who would give his son and his shed his own, the blood of his own son that sinners be reconciled unto him. Now you sit and you hear and you listen but you continue to thrust it away. You continue to throw up barrier after barrier and obstacle after obstacle. How long will it be before God begins to remove the light from you and your heart grow as hard as a stone, as hard as a rock? Till God give you over to yourself. You, you who love darkness, you love lies, how long will it be before God, before God simply gives you what you want and turns you into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth? Well, I've preached way too long. We still have business to do. But let us think on these things as we approach this table. I hope I've given you something to think about today. As we become and partake of these things which are symbols which speak of what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, prepare our hearts now in this moment. Father, there's no use us playing the hypocrite if we're not interested in the things of God, the things of Christ. May we not be a double hypocrite by partaking of these elements this morning, making mockery of these symbols, pretending to be something we're not. But Lord, if we have a heart that yearns after Christ, we've committed ourselves to Him. And Lord, even as imperfectly as we do it, we're following in His steps. We profess His name. We have Him as our hope and our hope alone. Then, O oh Lord, it is our joy our privilege to partake of these elements this day. To proclaim to each other and before our God that Christ and Christ alone is our life. May you bless us as we do this this day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.